Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Katie Didden is the author of Ore Choir, The Lava on Iceland, Tupelo Press 2022, and The Glacier's Wake, Pleiades Press 2013. Her poems, essays, and reviews appear in journals such as Public Books, Poetry Northwest, Ecotone, Diagram, The Canyon Review, Image, 32 Poems, The Spoon River Poetry Review, and more. She has received fellowships and residencies from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, Selwynese Writers Conference, the Vermont Studio Center, and many more. She is also a 2013-2014 Hutter Fellow at Princeton University. Collaborating with members of the Banff Research in Cultures Beyond Anthropocene Residency, she co-created Almanac for the Beyond, Tropic Editions 2019. Katie is an Associate Professor of English and Creative Writing at Ball State University. Katie, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to talk about Orquire. It's an extraordinary work of art, employing erasure in such a unique way. To help our listeners have context before they get to see the book for themselves, which I recommend they do, take a few minutes to describe Or Choir visually. Or Choir is a book of composites, photographs, and uh, source texts, and erasure poems. So how do I describe it? Visually, it's like a palimpsest. Um, it was very important to me when I wrote the poems that readers could also see the source text. And I was trying to figure out how to do that while also um, making the image look like lava. And my dear friend, Kevin Sun, actually figured it out. And he knew how to use grayscale and layering. Um, so he's the one who figured out how to um, make this palimpsest look, and to me it looks like a topographic map where it, it kind of indicates a layering and the way that he shaped the um, the erasures was meant to look like lava. Well, you, you kind of brought it up there that this was a collaboration as much as of, of a book of your poetry. Uh, what inspired you to explore the lava of Iceland, and then how did that become this collaboration and visualization, just how did those dots get connected? I'm so fascinated by how this project book, if you will, came together. Well, um, in my first book, The Glacier's Wake, I have a series of persona poems in the voice of a wasp and a sycamore and a glacier. And that all started with the wasp because I had a friend who, um, I was at an artist residency and this very lethargic wasp was flying around the studios and my friend who was there just took great affection towards this wasp and um, it became kind of a muse. And so um, I wrote a series of poems in the voice of the wasp. Uh, and I just really liked that experience. I felt like it was helping me think through subjects in, an, in a totally unexpected way. 
And so I also tried writing in the voices of other creatures and features. And um, so when I was writing in the voice of the sycamore, I each time I wanted to find a voice, I chose a different poetic form. So the sycamore, I used Welsh syllabic forms. And the glacier, I used kind of a jagged free verse. Uh, so I loved that so much, I wanted to keep going. And um, I knew I wanted to write in the voice of lava. Mm -hmm. And that's largely because I had taken a class as an undergrad uh, called Ring of Fire, where I'd studied um, plate tectonics. It was um, Professor Michael Wyseshen who taught this class. And, and when he taught that class, he also had us read The Control of Nature by John McPhee. And uh, there's an essay in that collection where John McPhee talks about the, 17, uh, the 1973 eruption of Jaime in Iceland and how the people who live there actually diverted the flow of lava to save the port. Mm -hmm. So it was really wanting to write in the voice of lava and that's what led me to Iceland. And when I was thinking of a poetic form that would help me to create that sense of lava, I thought of the form of erasure because I was imagining when poets, um, you know, do erasures, often they'll ink out the text with ink or with black ink or other, other forms. And that seemed to me like lava moving over mm -hmm. land. Um, and actually it's erasure that using that form to me is very, um, I believe that's why it was so important to move towards collaboration. And if you look at so many other artists who do erasure, you'll see it's very common for that practice to combine text and image and, uh, and, and quite often to have collaborators working together. So, um, I think it's something about the form itself that lends itself to collaboration. And to me, it was just this great joy of working not only with Kevin, but with all the photographers who uh, gave us poem, uh, gave us photos to use for the book. Well, that leads perfectly to my next question. So Aura Choir has multiple layers. Each two page spread has a poem on one side and the source text blended with photography on the opposite side. There are so many elements in play, so many decisions to make. How did you approach all those choices, the photographs to include, the source text to use, the themes to create from the erasures? I mean, that's a, every single spread is a ton of decisions. Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, many of them were intuitive, but <clears throat> when I was choosing source text, I was... I was um, trying to choose passages that somehow related to lava um, sometimes. And other times it was uh, things you might expect an outsider to be curious about um, with Iceland. So, you know, Iceland is famous for, um, you know, it's geology, but it also famous, you know, people hear about the, about Norse mythology mm -hmm. and the sagas. So there's there's one of uh, an erasure of a saga in the book. Um, also, you know, Siggy's yogurt, there's an erasure of a Siggy's <laughs> yogurt label, Icelandic water. Um, and 
I recently heard a lecture by Asa Sigurdon's daughter, and she was talking about the idea of Icelandicity um, in terms of Icelandic artists and to what extent they do or do not play, you know, work with that concept. And I'm not sure whether I am also inquiring into Icelandicity or just an example of it, but it's the sense of what is Iceland's global influence? Mm -hmm. And um, on the one hand, that's cultural, but, it's, but also because they have these active volcanoes, these eruptions have major impacts across the world. So, um, so the source texts were kind of looking at how um, lava might be part of even what we might not expect, that it, it's part of food and drink, it's part of history, it's part of art. And so there was some uh, desire to have a great variety of source texts, um, but it was also more intuitive in, in many ways. Yeah, and there's references to Bjork, there's women, references to the women's strike. I mean, it just, it, there's this, this collage of, of cultural and historical references that are buried for those that want to look. And I think it's clever how you can get a sense of it. You get curious, you go look at the notes in the back. I mean, uh, I didn't, I can't say that I read every text, but I did look at multiple of the texts, the source texts out of curiosity. And I think it really, um, it was just obscured enough to, to get you curious without being so obscured that it that you couldn't even tell what was there. It was very clever. Thanks. So Orquire is a beautiful book to look at. The design so thoroughly considered, the dimensions of the book, square and larger than a typical paperback, the merging of photography source text, how the poems are visually mined from using erasure, the extensive notes. How did you approach the design of the book, which I think is so critical? And obviously, this would be collaborative as well. But I'm I, there was clearly a strong visual opinion that guided this book's design. Again, I'll cite my collaborator, Kevin. I wish that he could join us for this because um, this really reflects his aesthetic. Although we had many, many conversations about about that as well, because um, there were. There were times when our visions didn't match up, uh, and so there was a lot of experimentation. And even in the layout of the book, even up to the end, you know, whether we wanted um, many, another effect might have been to go image, image, poem, poem, mm -hmm. so that you're you're because that would maybe have you'd have a sense of not a little bit of disorientation where you don't immediately have the answer key in some sense. Um, and we went, we had great conversations about that and those effects. Um, and, you know, Kevin had a real sense of scale for what worked well with these images. And so um, he would probably have a lot more details about how this or how and why this looks as it does. But there was also a book designer uh, who was, helping us with this as well. But I would say that they were very faithful to Kevin's vision for the, for the look of it. Well, it's just a beautiful book um, that, that just invites you in visually. So in The Ore, you write, The Ore, in a wish to know poetry, Ore formed and ran to put an end to war, carried a treaty of peace, a reed to a red beach spitting. 
As with the case with each of the poems, I was curious about the source text, scrimmed by the photographic masks. Using this poem as an example, how did you approach finding the poetry which is particularly effective in this little excerpt I pulled? Gosh, um, this is one of the oldest poems in the book, and this has become a fan favorite, mm. which I'm so happy to see. Uh, I don't often read this one. It, it feels like the my method really evolved from this one, uh, as you'll see. This one is still preserving a lot of phrases from mm -hmm. the original, and eventually I would get really further into letter by letter. Um, so uh, this one is about, this is from the younger Edda, Edda of Snorri Sturluson, and it was um, translated by I.A. Blackwell. And I remember it was actually, a, um, when I looked at this, when I, when I worked with, when I checked out this book, it was a very old book. It's 1907. So the, the feel of the page was also had a texture, which was really lovely. Uh, and of course, I didn't, I, I photocopied it. I didn't actually do my uh, scratches on, on a library book. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so when I'm going in, it, it feels very absorbing. I, I feel like I'm, I'm in the text and I'm kind of hurtling through the text. I, I almost feel like I'm pushing like lava might trying to find, um, you know, places where I can move forward. And so in, and quite often for me, that is sonic. So I'm finding my way forward towards a rhyme or towards something that, um, alliterates or, um, that's, I guess it is very intuitive, but, if I had to try to describe it, um, that would be that. I think what's interesting about this poem is, like many of the poems, and, and I've written about this, about erasure in general, there seems to be a tendency to get meta with erasure. Mm. And when you start to think about process itself and um, the, the art of creating poetry, and in particular, uh, I get meta about syntax. <laughs> And uh, so in this one, it kind of goes back and forth between uh, thinking about what poetry is, how poetry might be something that is so central, you know, even thinking about how it might put an end to war, um, but also is uh, so language based and how those two might be related. So in terms of selecting your source material, you've got the, once you've made that selection, that's the, the source, those are the letters, phrases, words that you can work with. Did you have to get partial way in on some of the poems and go, well, this source material is just not going to work and you have to just throw it away and start over? Or were you looking for certain things in the source material, given all the aspects that had to come together to make it work? I mean, it couldn't be a 10 page thing <laughs> because it wouldn't work visually. And it couldn't probably be two lines because there wouldn't be enough raw material to create poems from. So how did you approach that selection process? Yes, it's true. Um, I think it was maybe by shape um, at first and looking for something the size of a good paragraph. Um, and I did try a couple of texts that didn't work right away, but that was more towards the beginning. Um, 
I really wanted to work with Eileen Miles, The Importance of Being Iceland. And I, I think I tried a couple and I was very surprised that it wasn't moving forward, but I, I don't think that was about the text itself. I think it was more um, just me trying to figure out my methodology. Um, so, but I, I will say that interviews had a great quality. Hmm. And, and since I'm writing in a first person, um, sometimes using the interviews made that easier. Um, and then later I got a little greedy <laughs> because I wanted to write longer poems, I think. And I started to be uh, wrestling with the source text to a greater extent. And so those uh, texts got longer. And then Kevin, <laughs> Kevin had to say, uh, there's a maximum here because the visuals would get more, uh, would be so dense it would be, it would really impact the quality of the visual. So again, there was conversation around that, um, but I never felt too constrained by that. Uh -huh. So, Well, now on the question of revising and editing, in most poems, you can change everything. <laughs> A sonnet that isn't suiting the material can become free verse. Stanzas can be reordered, words inserted or deleted. I guess deleting is okay. That's just more erasure, but insurgent is harder. How did you approach revising and editing with the constraint of the source text, even down to the point where if you had to repeat a letter and there weren't repeated letters in the source text, you're out of luck? Yes. Um, I am a poet. I, I revise constantly. I have, I'm have. i a kind of poet who will work on a poem for 10 years. So, uh, so this was interesting for me because a lot of the... Um, Editing is happening as I as I go. I, I did not revise these as much as I would my other poems, I would say. But I did revise them, and it is possible. And it, it's just um, you have to really let go. Like, you just have to move back spatially. And it's almost like finding a different way through the maze. And um, there were several poems where I did that. And it's very satisfying. It's satisfying to see how infinite it is moving mm -hmm. through the text. And... Um, and there were some times when I would get to a passage and I really wanted a word and it was not available. And I was saying somewhere, it was like um, cleaning the kitchen floor and mopping yourself into the center of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I found a way and that was thrilling. And um, yeah, but I, I will say that... Um, it happens more as I go with these poems because the constraint is so tight. So, Well, uh, leaning in on form now, the, the questioning or interview poems are a wonderful shift in form with two speakers, both extracted from the found text, as though it's not challenging enough to pull one poem out, you have to pull two. The erasure is visualized by different opacities of the photograph layered over the source text. In one of these double erasure poems, the scientist questions the lava you write, scientist. What was fixed? What was fluid? Lava. Lobes crept in hollows. Birds fled. In the notes, you refer to the background research influencing the incorporation of questioning the lava through double erasures. Share a bit more about how you approached researching Oracle and how that research changed your approach to the book as you learned more. The most significant thing that happened during the course of my research was that I learned about the 1783 eruption of the Lakageiger fissure in Iceland. And 
uh, I learned about its devastation. In fact, it wasn't, it was, I mean, I, I was working on this book when there was a volcanic eruption in Japan and some hikers died. And I realized that I had been um, a little irresponsible in, in how I was treating this figure of lava. Uh, it was a little whimsical. Mm, and mm-hmm. I, um, I wanted to really think with the subject. And so I was researching and then I, I learned about this eruption that um, it just, it was an eruption that started in 1783. The, the fissure erupted for eight months, I believe. And um, it just had devastating consequences, most especially in Iceland. Um, and then also globally, it, it lowered global temperatures. And uh, so it, you know, they think it was one of the original causes of the French Revolution because it destroyed mm. crops in Europe. You know, it froze the Chesapeake Bay. Um, it lowered the Nile. So there was mass migration in Egypt. Um, it, it really did have global consequences. So uh, once I started researching that eruption, I it became kind of a spine in the book where I, I started really looking into that because... Um, I, I, if, if the premise of the book is that lava speaks, I, I, I wanted to learn more about, you know, how could this happen? You know, how, how do we, how do we be in relationship with this devastation? And so I thought, um, as I was doing the research, I thought maybe I could ask the lava from three different points of view. And one is the, the vulva, who is, a um, a Norse uh, prophet, and it was a, a female figure. And in the Norse mythology, Odin resurrects the vulva to tell the story of Ragnarok, the end of the world. And that poem, the Valaspa, um, scholars have said that it might have been composed by women, and also that it was likely composed after the Elja eruption in the 10th century. Hmm. Uh, so to me, it just seemed as if this this female figure was um, putting this into language so that people would remember. And so even though it's not the elder eruption, I thought the vulva would be someone again to think with about how do we ask questions about what it means to live with this destruction. And then the, I also asked a, a priest, and I was basing this off of... Uh, so, so the Valaspa one in here, you'll also see that it's a translation of the Valaspa poem. So there's a layer of that. And then there's a priest, Jan Steingrimson, who actually survived the eruption and wrote an autobiography about, about that. So when the priest questions the lava, that poem is also a loose translation of Steingrimson's autobiography. And the scientist is uh, based on uh, Thorvaldur Thorderson, who's a geologist, and he went back and uh, cross-referenced the rock record with um, accounts of survivors. So actually the language of that, the lobes and the um, birds fled, come directly from uh, witness accounts of what was happening and how they made sense of it. 
Totally fascinating. I expected that, that as you dug into the research, it had to have an influence, and that's a great example. Just a couple more questions before I hand the mic over to you. So the photographs, source text, and resulting poems express Iceland in a multifaceted way. In the notes, you write about the collaboration with artists. What do you hope readers take away from Oroquire about Iceland as a place, a country, an idea? Hmm. I hope that I can, uh, I, I guess I think of myself as side by side with my readers. I, I hope they'll see how much I acknowledge myself as an outsider and, and that this is uh, a place with a marvelous history and a marvelous uh, culture and and just a fascinating landscape and so I guess what I hope is that I'll send people to the source texts and um, just see that it's kind of an homage and um, yeah I guess I, I would hope that people would um, turn to this the incredibly rich uh, culture and artists and artifacts and history that's there. What certainly makes your book unique is that poets use research all the time, but in many cases that the reference material isn't called out or footnoted. It's just buried in the poem or it influenced the imagery. In this case, the, 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 all the things you refer to or many of the things are right there for you to dig into. So I think that is really cool. I certainly was was very curious about many of the source texts. So what advice do you have for poets or, or your students that are considering taking on the challenge of a project book versus a, a book that's a collection of poems? I guess I would say have fun with it. It, it was, it just, I guess I would just recommend it. I, I loved it. I think sometimes I'm, I'm working on my third collection is not a project book. It's more like my first book. Um, which I also love that too. But I think the project book for poets is just so fun. I, I think fiction writers have that experience of coming back to something that's already in the works. And I think it, there, it feels to me like companionship mm -hmm. in a strange way. Like I, I come back to an old friend or I come back to something that um, I have a place to begin and I, I can see it. it's a long, longer relationship uh, I guess I just recommend it. It's really fun. It's great. Yeah. Well, it's like I can relate to what you just said because I'm working on a project that will probably take another year that uh, is an ecrastic tour of San Francisco Bay Area museums. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah, I think, I, and I'm, I think I'm getting closer to the title. I've got a, a poem, uh, Beautiful Dead Things, that is based on one of the paintings in one of the museums. And I thought, hmm, that might be a useful title. So we'll see cool, if that I ends up that. Be, we'll see if that ends up being the title. But I'm, I like it right now. But yes, it is nice to have. I know what I'm working on um, right. at an at a meta level. I know what the prompt is, and now I have to make the most of it. But I don't have. I'm not starting from scratch every poem. Right. Yeah, that's great. Cool. All right. So now I'll turn the mic over to you to read selections from Orquire. I thought I'd read poems that I haven't read quite as often, um, but ones that I'm sort of partial to. So the first one in the book, it's a photograph by the photographer Leah Sobsey. And the primary text is by Catherine Anna Lund and Carl Benedictson. 
and the article's Inhabiting a Risky Earth, the Eyjafjallajökull Yoko eruption in 2010 and its impacts. And it was published in Anthropology Today. So I'm just gonna read the first line of the prose and then I'll read the poem that came from that. The first ash falls affected only a small area close to the volcano. A few farms to the southeast of the mountain suffered badly. Day turned to night and people had to stay indoors and use masks and goggles if they ventured outdoors to tend their sheep, cattle, or horses. And this is the lava. Some scan situations for threat. The whole landscape covert, an eerie appearance. This taints the real with the remotely possible a dream where planes fall like rain. Fear disorders how we see strangers and bullets fly faster than reason. Will you lean on each other when I wreck the seasons? And the next one I'll read uh, goes way back to the start of things and this is the a uh, passage by John McPhee from Cooling the Lava. And here's the first line. Like an iceberg that had calved off a glacier, the great bulk of the north side of the volcano remained afloat in a molten sea. It was a mountain in itself, and moreover, it moved. So here's the lava. Like an animal... I seemed to hesitate. They saw me as a soul, one who'd listen. The waves across my red rock spelled a skin, filled in blanks of speech, translating halt by degrees. The coast redrawn, a twined lexicon where nouns are never still. To read, Select an area of the lava lit with moss and eat. Let the fluent body redefine heaven as something more than human. And this last one is a source text by Jacoby Workman and Dorigo. And this was a study about uh, tree rings in Alaska, they were looking into studying tree rings to, to cross-reference that with the 1783 eruption and uh, oral histories of the Kaurak people to see what happened in that part of the world as a result of the eruption. So this is a poem in two voices. Uh, and again, it's the vulva, who's the prophetess, and the lava. And here's the first line of prose. Information about a severely cold summer comes from a book recording the oral traditions of the Kaurak people from Northwest Alaska. And I'll read this in two voices. So the vulva. Nine ages I read, tracing tree rings. When no light shone in the yawning gap, what were you? Lava. Matter begins as bodies moving 
to see me unscrew one eye to the socket and stash it in a well. Let salt unseal a story. And in the ill ages of ash, like a hound traversing earth, what did you seek? The orb spins, villages rise again, uncivil river, death hewn, a plore song, listen. Songs of starvation and death survive ear to ear. I eye the ridgeline, rivering the softest rock to no more. Far back in time, the cloven heavens seared into us a century of wailing. Know ye more or not? Pattern sounder, Silmaril, by tree light the world's in mourning. A stone knowledge gleams at the letting go. I unmake eternity, rewild gold, fluent as the migratory birds that reverse the ground. Describe being all exposed and here now. Walls fall in a wolf age, leakless the fields. There slain gods adorn the trees. Runes graved on bone draw sap. The frozen veins flash. Say it, words last. Poet, listen. So lovely hearing you read the poems in your voice and incorporating some of the found text. I have a, a question that has actually nothing to do with the poems you just read, but how has this immersion in a complex erasure form changed or impacted the poetry you're writing that doesn't have the same extreme constraint, if it's affected it at all? But I have a feeling it probably has to have affected it in some way. I Yeah, I think when I was in the midst of it, it really gets you into language in a different way. And it... Um, well, I think like any deep dive into poetry, it's, it almost feels like translation to me. I've never, not that I've ever done that, but I suspect that I would love translating it because it feels like the, you're you're searching for words that, because you have an idea, but it's not in the text. And so you're trying to, you know, you really have to search through your mind for the compromise or the word that, um, the best, the best word for it. So, um I, I'm guessing it's similar for translators that when you're translating, it is impacting your own poetry. And for me, it certainly was. It's, it's just um, it's just this densely sonic experience. And uh, yeah, I miss I miss doing it in many ways. So, well, it's it's just such an extraordinary book that I, I encourage everyone who's really intrigued by what this book looks like to go seek it out because uh, it's it's a visual feast. So just a last closing question I ask everybody, what are you working on now in addition to doing these sorts of things to promote the book? Well, I have, I'm working on two new projects and one of them is um, a book of poems that are um, far more um, personal and, and maybe more narrative or uh, a different they're more free verse poems, I guess I would say, and they're looking at a, a ton of different subjects. So um, everything from super derechos to Dante to um, looking at friendships and looking at, um, 
you know, uh, faith, all kinds of different questions coming up there. Um, and I'm about halfway through that book, really wanting to dig into that. Um, and then another project I'm working on is a project called Letter by Weather or Weather by Letter. I'll say that, yeah. And that is a collaborative project about weather forecasting. Hmm. And um, this is, I've been asking people to send me weather reports um, over the last three years. And they're uh, weather reports that invite people to think relationally, relationally about the weather. And my hope is to use that source material in a way that will help build a poet's approach to weather forecasting. Oh, I love it, especially within the in the San Francisco Bay Area right now. We're having really wild weather where snow is capping all the mountaintops that are I near heard us. about that, yeah. We're right in the middle of it. Yeah, it's raining outside and there was a little bits of hail coming and it's possible, you know, oh there's the gosh. chance of whether we could get some snow at our our level, which happens in our 20 plus years we've been here. It's happened, I think, twice where you get a light dusting. But it's, yeah, it's we're getting some really wild weather this winter. Yeah. Um, so, so the, the thought there is how can we, rather than reading, um, weather for conflict, how do we think about weather relationally and how does that change our, our sense of, um, our relationship to the future of weather? Fascinating. Well, I'm really looking forward to what you have in the future. I'm just so excited. I'm going to go back through your, and, and read your earlier book based on Orquire got me really excited about what you're doing. So thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. It was wonderful preparing for this interview. And I again, I tell people, go find Orquire, the lava on Iceland. You'll, it's a visual feast and poetic feast. Well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely a delight. And thanks for all of your great questions. Hey, thank you. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.